Today's Old Testament text is Genesis chapter 17, 1 through 7, and 15 through 16. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk with me and be trustworthy. I will make a covenant between us, and I will give you many, many descendants. Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, But me, my covenant is with you. You will be the ancestor of many nations, and because I have made you the ancestor of many nations, your name will no longer be Abram, but Abraham. I will make you very fertile. I will produce nations from you, and kings will come from you. I will set up my covenant with you and your descendants after you in every generation as an enduring covenant. I will be your God and your descendants God after you. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, you will no longer call her Sarai. Her name will now be Sarah. I will bless her and even give you a son from her. I will bless her so that she will become nations and kings of peoples will come from her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Hill family. And if you have a Bible, turn with me this morning to Mark, the eighth chapter. The gospel text today comes from Mark, chapter 8, beginning this morning at verse 27. And if you're present with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Jesus and his disciples went into the villages near, near Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about him. But then Jesus began to teach his disciples, the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts and be killed, and then after three days rise from the dead. He said this plainly. But Peter took hold of Jesus and scolding him began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, then sternly corrected Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this unfaithful and sinful generation, the human one will be ashamed of that person when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I have been, um, been kind of nervous, actually, about this sermon this morning. Um, I'm not usually that way. Um, most weeks, and especially as we've been kind of following the lectionary for a little while now, the, the fun part about doing that when you're the preacher is it sends you to different texts, and sometimes texts you've never preached on before, and so you get to go on this journey to kind of find this place, and you get this discovery, and all of a sudden you come up with this idea that comes out of the text, and you get all excited, and then you get to share that on Sunday, and then you get to do it all over again next week. Um, but it's usually this act of kind of discovering something in a territory maybe you haven't been to before. 
I think what makes me a little nervous this morning is my high expectations for today. Because I, I've known this text is coming for a while, and if there, if there is a life text for me, a text that I would say, that's the text. That's the text that if I ever learned needlepoint, this is the text I would put on my wall. If there's a text that has transformed me, has been vital, central, the transformative text for me, it's this text that we just read from Mark 8. And so this morning, I'm going to ignore my notes if that's okay. Part of that's because I really bombed at 9 o'clock. Um, and I, and again, it's because I had kind of high expectations because I, I don't just want to kind of share an idea with you today. What I would love, I, I kind of wish some inventor would have something that attaches my head into your head wherever you are. <laughs> And uh, we get, I could just transfer those thoughts or maybe more appropriately attach to my heart and to your heart. And uh, because I, I know that words won't be able for me today to express how important this text is for me. But there are two areas for me in which this text is transformative. And, and I want to think with you about them today. This text has been transformative to me in terms of how I think about identity and how identity is formed but it's also been central to me with what I think is the mission or what I believe is the mission that we as God's people have been called to embody in the world. And so I, I want to think first about identity. And if you have your Bible still open, go back with me to verse 35 because it's really the central one. Jesus said, all who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In Matthew, Matthew puts it this way, if you want to find yourself, you will lose yourself. But if you lose yourself, you will find yourself. This year is Mark's 30 years that I started working with college students. I, I became a college minister in 1991. And whether that's in the university or church, I've worked worth college students for 30 years. And, and the fun part about that is, and the delight of working with college students is they are people who are really desperately trying to figure out their identity. They're looking for who they are. And it's just kind of fun to get to be with them as they're trying to discover who they are and who they're going to ultimately be. But we have, in our day and age, we have a real identity crisis. And so let me talk to you just a little bit about why this is kind of a unique time with regards to the challenge of finding identity. For most of human history, when people were born into the world, they were born into, for lack of a better term, they were born into a story. There was already a story going, and they found themselves in it. And so much of their identity came because they were part of a particular family or clan or nation or occupation. Like, you were born into a kind of story and then you lived into or out of that story. Um, this may sound strange, but hang with me. I, I've been doing some reading about formation, and uh, a couple of scholars were arguing that in prior to the modern time period, when people entered into life already having a story, they were saying you can tell a lot by a culture by, by what happens to people when they kind of lose it. Like when people have psychological disorders, what are the kinds of psychological disorders that they face as a culture? And in the pre-modern time period, the primary way that people um, began to express problems psychologically 
was what's called hysteria. That you would kind of go crazy and you would lose it, but you would lose it because of a kind of pressure that you felt put upon you. So that you were maybe the firstborn son, and it's your obligation to carry forward not only this family name, but this family heritage. And that's a big burden to bear, right? So I don't, I don't know if you are fans of the crown. Um, and if you're not, I, I don't know how to help you. But, um, but if you're fans of the crown, I think part of what fascinates us about the crown and about the royal family in England is not just the cool houses and, you know, all the stuff. But in some ways, I think what fascinates us about the crown is it's kind of a, a pre-modern story set in a modern time. So that the challenge of the show is that Queen Elizabeth doesn't have a lot of choices in life other than what to eat, you know, and, and well, she has to have corgis. I was going to say what kind of dog, but she has to have corgis apparently. But, um, but if you're a fan of the show, you know, she bears this incredible burden. Like she's born into this family and she has inherited this title and part of her role is to kind of keep the dignity and lineage and I was even the transcendent lineage of England alive in her person and even when she becomes queen there's all sorts of very religious ceremony that the transcendent is breaking in and laying its weight upon her and so what's fascinating about the royal family is not just all this stuff that they have and all this wealth but it's this obligation to carry forward. They don't have a lot of choices. Like she has to be a certain kind of person and not just because she's British and has a stiff upper lip, but she has to carry forward this role, this obligation. And as you think about the family, part of the intrigue of the family is the ways in which in a modern world, some within the family are like, we love the money that's part of this family, but we don't want the obligation and pressure that comes with being a royal, right? Well, in the pre-modern world, people then were born into this kind of story. But, but what's happened for us in modernity is we've largely, and this is a long talk of its own, but we've kind of thrown that off for various reasons. We've thrown off stories. And so we instead think of ourselves entering into the world, and now we get to write our own destiny, especially in America. We love this. And we write, we write pop songs about how... Um, <laughs> you know, open up the dirty windows. We are, our, our life remains unwritten. You know, like all the pages are out there in front of us, but we get to be the author of our destiny. Uh, it's really cool stuff. But here's kind of the problem of identity then for college students for the last 30 years. Is they don't have hysteria. They don't have a pressure that causes them to kind of lose it by buckling under the pressure in fact, these scholars say the dominant way our culture reflects psychological disorder is depression. The dominant neuroses, if you will, for our time and our place, our culture is depression. Which may happen for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons these scholars argue is that as a young person, you're trying to figure out who you are. But there's no story that already tells you who you are, so you've got to kind of write that. And kind of figure that out. And some of you who are parents and grandparents, you know how tricky this is raising kids these days. Because you don't, you don't want to push too hard, right? Like you don't want to impose. I have some hopes for them, but I don't want to push that too hard because then they may, they may go, <laughs> go, you know, they may push back. And that would make me a bad parent, you know, to push that too hard. And so what, what Deb and I have done now is 
you try all these things, right? Like you, you sign them up for basketball or, you know, upward sports or all these kinds of things and ballet and you, you know, you sign them up for music lessons and you try to get them interested in their academic life. Like you want them to find their thing. Oh, please find your thing, right? And our garage is full of things <laughs> that didn't work. Things that they tried for a little bit, but it wasn't really their thing, right? And so as a parent, you feel like they'll find their identity when they find their thing. And usually college kids who have kind of solved the identity crisis at some level are the kids who kind of know what they want their major to be. They're involved in some kind of athlete, athletics and they've gotten good at it and, you know, and that's kind of their thing or relationships are kind of their thing, social life's kind of their, they found a kind of thing and they've started to discover who they are out of that. Now here's the problem. Uh, it's good to find your thing, but some things that you give yourself to don't actually ultimately fulfill that identity issue. Or maybe it fulfills it for a while but it's not the ultimate thing. Um, so I remember having this kind of crisis. For a while, my thing became learning, right? Like, became academics. And then I realized, man, there's a lot of smart people in the world. And I will never learn it all. This was never my thing, but for obvious reasons. But I have, feel like I've had friends who their thing became kind of their beauty or even their, their body. And that's, that can be your thing for a while. And then you turn 55, 54, right? And whatever that thing is starts to not be a thing anymore, right? Like it just unthings itself. Your thing becomes family, right? You, you fall in love. Your thing becomes this relationship. Your thing becomes raising children. And then they grow up, right? And they go to college and all of a sudden you're dealing with an empty nest and trying to figure out now what is my thing? Some of you know what it's like to, to lose a spouse and so much of what your identity was wrapped up in now is, is gone, is different. I struggle with this now, you know, 55 is just a couple of months away. I think about how so much of my thing, and this has been a good thing, I got to do a Jesus thing, right? Like I got to devote myself to helping the church. But I just am constantly reminded that this won't be my thing forever. And somebody else is going to come and just mess this whole thing up. I'm already frustrated thinking about it. <laughs> like, like, like who, what, who will I be the, the week that I'm not supposed to be up here anymore? Like, right? Like that identity can be in things that are good, but they're not ultimate things. So for, for just a second, I could go back to the, the Genesis text. So the Old Testament text that's partnered with this is the story of Abram becoming Abraham and Sarai becoming Sarah. But there's actually three name changes in Genesis 17. The text goes like this, and then God, the, original, the first word is Yahweh. Then Yahweh said, I am, and here's my new identity, God says, I am El Shaddai. Which if you're a child of the 80s was totally corrupted by Amy Grant right there. And you have Amy Grant now stuck in your head for the rest of the day. But El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Was there ever a song that has been performed 
more badly by seventh graders in teen talent than Ezra, right? Like, is there in the Hall of Fame, yeah, whatever the Hall of Fame of bad teen talent songs are, El Shaddai is at the top. But El Shaddai, if you look at the text, El Shaddai means this, God Almighty. I am God Almighty. That's how I want you to know. I am the God over everything, Abram and Sarai. You have followed me out into this wilderness. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to make you the father and mother of these many nations, and you will no longer be Abram, which means father. You will be Abraham, father of a multitude. And you will no longer be Sarai, which means princess. You will be Sarah, which means queen mother. And what I think is true of that text is it's In some level, it's all right, and it's kind of good and cool for Abram and Sarai to be father and princess, to kind of find their, want to find their identity in having children. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, it's a way of finding identity. But if I could use a kind of fancy word today, those forms of identity are always penultimate forms of identity. Penultimate means they're good, but they're not the ultimate. Like, they're in second and third place. So what God is inviting them into this covenant is to say, Abram and Sarai, I am God Almighty. Walk with me. Make our connection the ultimate connectedness of your life. And if you do that, I'm going to make you a father and mother. That's going to be great. But that will still be the penultimate identity for you. I'm going to give you an ultimate identity father of a multitude and the queen mother of this movement, right? Now you're not very excited about that. That was so cool. And so part of what I'm wanting to say to all of us, some who are in midlife and realize, oh man, so much of my identity is caught up in penultimate forms of identity. And I'm either experiencing now the loss of some of that identity or I'm, I see a day coming when that so much of what I find in my identity, I'm going to have to shift in some other kind of way. That what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you want to find yourself in that way, you're going to lose yourself. But here's the deal. If you will lose yourself for my sake, walk before me, Abram and Sarai. Commit oneself to the ultimate If you lose yourself for my sake and for the sake of the kingdom, you will not lose yourself. You will find yourself in that way. And so the reason this text has been so important to me is is because daily, 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 I'm trying to discover what it means for my identity to be in Christ, for my identity to be be as a servant of the kingdom. And if that's the case, am I, if, I'm, if I'm a father, it's for the sake of raising children for God's purposes. If I'm in a marriage, it's to be able to reflect God's love to those around me through my love to my spouse. If I get to be a pastor for this time, great. But I get to do that in the service of some greater purpose. And if I don't get to do this anymore, it does not mean that the missional part of my life is over. It just means that those penultimate identities come and go, but that ultimate identity remains. 
So I want to say to a generation so depressed, trying to form an identity kind of out of nothing, and then posting that on Instagram or Facebook and saying, please like it. Please affirm this identity I'm creating. Because it doesn't fit into anything bigger than that. And when it doesn't, and we realize that, this is kind of depressing. But Jesus invites us to begin to solve the identity crisis that plagues our age by finding our identity in Christ. The second part is verse 34. So after calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So this is maybe my favorite section of any gospel In Mark, Mark has 16 chapters, and the first eight, really first seven and a few verses into chapter eight, are Jesus in Galilee. And I counted this week, there are 13 separate miracles in the first seven plus chapters of Mark. And those 13 miracles, there are some that I didn't count in there that are like, and Jesus was with the crowds, and he blessed and healed a bunch of people. But I mean like specific miracles. The demoniac in the synagogue, um, the demoniac, the Gerasian demoniac, walking on water, uh, feeding multitudes, healing Peter's mother-in-law. There are 13 of them, and every time in Mark he does something powerful, he kind of says, shh, don't tell anybody. But it doesn't matter because crowds begin to follow. They, They recognize, wow, there's something of power that is going on here. There's something of power that that is at work, certainly the Spirit of God is upon this one, and if God's going to move, it may be through this person. Let's go follow him and see where this goes. And so people desperate for something new to happen in the world begin to follow Jesus, this one who seems to have the miraculous happen all over wherever he goes. But if you have your Bible still open, in in chapter 8, verse 22, we get the 14th miracle. Now, from chapter 8, in chapter 8, 9, and 10, this is this key section that's been so transformative to me. It's bookended by the healing of two blind people. One that we'll look at in just a second. And then at the end, blind Bartimaeus, who ends up being healed and then following Jesus on the way. That's miracle 14 and 16. Number 15 happens in chapter 9. And it's a healing of a possessed young man or young boy who's possessed by a spirit that keeps him from being able to hear and being able to speak. So look with me for just a second. This is chapter 8, verse 22. This may be my favorite miracle. Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch and heal him. Taking the blind man's hand, Jesus led him out of the village. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on the man, he asked him, do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees. And they're walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again. He looked with his eyes wide open. His sight was restored and he could see everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. 
And now Jesus, the text we just read, Jesus and his disciples went on, the, on their way to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. So I have to say this is, this may be my favorite miracle, in part because it's so weird. It's the only time that I know of in the scripture where Jesus had to do something twice to get it right, which blesses my heart a little bit. But I don't think the miracle is just there to say, wow, sometimes Jesus does things kind of half-heartedly. Or like it didn't, he has to do it again. I think that the text is there, the miracle is there then to set up all the next three chapters. So this blind man has touched twice, and now Jesus says, hey guys, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, we're so glad you asked. Survey monkeys are in. You are so popular. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Other think, others, some people think one of the other prophets. But here's the key question. Who do you say that I am? Peter gets the right answer. You are Messiah. Which is so powerful. Because Peter is saying, listen, We've joined you not because we think this is a kind of nice revival movement for, for Galilee. Or this is this momentary blip in our historical moment where a prophet comes and, and renews us and gets us kind of reconnected in some nice ways that will carry us forward for a few years. Peter is saying, you are the revolution. You are the one we've been waiting for. And not just like we, these 12. You are the one we've been waiting for. The whole creation's been waiting. You are the one that is going to bring God's new creation, God's newness, God's revolution. You're the one. Now in Mark, Jesus does not say, oh, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In Mark, Jesus goes, shh, don't tell anybody. But then, he begins to talk to them about how the leader of God's revolution, the son of man, the one expected since Daniel, that will come and rise up over every empire that has ever existed and will ever exist. He says here, the human one, the son of man must suffer, be persecuted, betrayed, crucified, and on the third day rise again. And this interesting Mark says, and he says this openly, tell anybody you want about this. But Peter rebukes him. Why? Certainly because Peter has a pair of political glasses on his eyes that he was raised with. They've been formed from the very beginning of his life. Expectations that say, Romans are bad. We are oppressed. We need somebody who will come and create a violent revolution that will overthrow the enemies and will establish Israel as the nation above the nation. We're ready for a warrior. And now Jesus talks about how this one who will lead will suffer. And Peter rebukes them. Now what I would love for you to get is Jesus tries this three times. He tries it again in chapter 9. The leader of this revolution has to suffer. And what happens? They fight about who's the greatest. And so Jesus has to draw little children to him and has to say, listen, guys, here's what the kingdom looks like. It doesn't look like greatness the way that you have come to think about what it means to be great. And then he encounters this young demoniac who is so possessed by the 
by the spirit of the age that he cannot hear rightly and he cannot speak rightly. And then again in chapter 10, Jesus tries to say, listen guys, the leader of this revolution, the one you've been waiting for will suffer and die and on the third day rise again. And James and John say, great, but when you come into your kingdom, who gets to sit at the right and left? To which Jesus responds, oy vey. It's right there in the text. Oy vey. I don't get to determine that. And you don't even know what you're asking. For Mark, there will be someone at the right and the left when Jesus comes into his kingdom. But Jesus heals Bartimaeus. James and John want to sit at the right and left, but Bartimaeus wants to see. So if you're with me, here's why this miracle is so important. It's because the miracle sets up this idea, the disciples who see the Jesus of Galilee, and let me say, that is a big part of who Jesus is. To know Jesus is to know the Jesus that loves us and knows us and heals and blesses and feeds. But if that's all we know, then we are half blind. And so for Mark, we have to go all the way to Jerusalem to see Jesus revealed on the cross to fully see like Bartimaeus. But in the meantime, until we learn that, we should probably not talk so much, Peter. In fact, you should get behind me and follow for a while, Satan. And maybe you don't hear so well. And maybe you need the Spirit of God to release your tongue to say things that are true and not false. And maybe when the Lord asks you what you want, you won't ask for power, but you'll understand what it means to ask to be able to see. All that to say, the reason this text has been so important for me is because it has helped me to understand if I, in order to find my identity, ultimately I have to find it in Christ. But but it also has shaped how I understand the mission that God has given to us in Christ. For when we think about the cross and what it means, not just to think about Jesus on the cross, but what it means in Mark's language for us to take up our cross and to follow him. To find our life in the cross. For me, I, I think that has come to mean two very important things. First, it means we will find God most clearly in places and in persons who are suffering. That if you want to find where God is, God is in the places where people are hurt and damaged and oppressed and marginalized. And that is where Christ identifies and finds himself. And so we can say in the season, there is now no place called God forsaken for God in Christ has gone to the places called forsaken. And therefore we as a people are always invited to take up our cross and to, to have the eyes to see those who are oppressed and and to come with the grace that sets us free, whether that bondage is sin or some other form of oppression, we are a people who go to proclaim freedom. You weren't very excited about that. I'm sorry. Thank you, Mom. But it also means that we who have now been set free have been invited to be instruments of Christ's love in the world. That we are set free by God's grace, but we are transformed by God's love. 
And we are called to be instruments of his love. To transform, to enter into this revolution, to follow Christ, and to be instruments of his transforming work of love in the world. And here's why this is so hard. is because to be shaped by the politics of the cross means you and I will be so really weird in the world. We'll be a people who know who we are. But we will be a people who are so hard to pigeonhole, define, name, describe. Because the life of love and transformation that we live is better embodied than described. And it is a life that we cannot live in our own perspective or in our own power, but only by the power of the Spirit of God at work in us. And so here's the, here's the part that makes me nervous. I, uh, I have found this, hard, this year really hard to pastor in, and not because of the COVID stuff. But more, I cannot remember a time in my own life, and I read enough history to know this isn't the first time a nation or people have been really divided. But in trying to mentor young ministers and figure out my own, what it means to lead a people who are shaped by the politics of the cross. It's been interesting for me to reflect on this, that I, I have pastored in really what we would think of as kind of cultural, culturally liberal settings, which came with its own challenges. And I've pastored in a couple of places that were really culturally conservative, and that comes with its own challenges. I don't remember a time, some of you who have been around longer can remind me it's happened before. But I don't remember a time where, like Peter, who hears what Jesus is saying, but sees and hears the kingdom through a particular political framework that either causes him to not hear it or reject it, to rebuke or to walk away than we are right now. And, and, and I mean that, that what I find at work is, is so many people now kind of look for a church that either fits their conservative political lens or, on the other hand, fits their liberal political lens. But that's become the lens that has shaped their primary identity in the world. And the problem, it dawned on me, I was, I've been teaching preaching which, by the way, students, don't watch this sermon. It's been a mess. Um, but I was listening to a, a, a student preach on, on the Sermon on the Mount this week. And they were talking about the text where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, right? But if a salt loses its saltiness, it cannot be made salty again. It's good for nothing. Just throw it out. But then the next passage is what? You are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel basket, but you put it on a lampstand so that it brings light to the whole room. After the sermon was over, we got to reflecting, and it was really fascinating. We got talking about how it's interesting in that text to me that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount brings together two very kind of different perspectives on how we are to be in the world. That salt is not just, I mean, we think of salt now as something that makes our food a little spicier, tastes a little better. But in the ancient world, salt with no refrigerators, right? Salt was the source that preserved things. 
If salt lost its saltiness, your meat went bad. Salt is that thing that keeps the world from corrupting, from dis- degenerating. So if, if you'll hang with me here, salt is a very conservative force in the world. It's conserving good things that should not pass away. But if you'll, if you'll allow me today, light's liberal. Light comes in, frees people from darkness, scatters darkness. I mean, light comes in to bring freedom. Salt conserves, light frees. And so we were talking about that, and so we got to laughing. You know, are we supposed to be liberal or conservative? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so I think about the challenges of ministry in a world where our political lens is not the cross, but some other one. And so in a season like this where we have felt so pressed to in some ways be conservative in the ways that we show love for our neighbor by practicing a lot of caution and of conserving each other's in care. And for some, that has just been way too much. I am convinced that the cross, Paul says, now in Christ Jesus, there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Which is so liberating. And so part of practicing that politic, I think for us as a church, is to embody what it means for men and women to lead the body of Christ. To be one in Christ Jesus. It means those divides that have been across human history between people economically and racially, we are a people who have taken up the cross and we will overcome those boundaries that have divided us for far too long. And we are a people who when confronted with those injustices, we will bring light that exposes and brings newness and goodness to every corner. And so a people who worship like that cannot ultimately have their allegiance shaped by a particular race or culture or even nation, but are a people who worship in ways that frame us differently in our posture towards the world. And you know the problem with that? Sounds really liberal. I'll, I'll show you the emails. Thanks, honey. But you know what? We're called to be holy. We're called to be holy, which means we are convinced there is a grain to the universe, a way we ought to live our lives. We don't just get to create ourselves out of nothing. But there is a pattern, a form that we live into, and when we do that, there's a a holiness, which means we say no to some things and yes to some others. And I have to tell you, when you preach holiness, There are people who think, you are so conservative. Because to liberal ears who think freedom is an end in itself, living a holy life will always sound conservative. But we're called to live lives of love in the world. That do not allow us to have our final hopes in our ability to threaten others. But we are people who believe that the one who raised Jesus from the dead can raise us from the dead. And so we can live in hope and trust and peace, extending goodness and graciousness in the world. And to so many people, that sounds so liberal. And I want to say to you this morning, welcome to the gospel. 
For Jesus invites us to be salt and light. And by the way, that's not, Jesus isn't trying to negotiate the middle. Jesus is inviting us to take up the cross, and that is a politic the world will never understand in its own terms. And so we will be a people whose ultimate identity is found in Christ and whose life politically in the world is found in Christ. And just last thought, if you understand how odd that is, how challenging that is, you'll understand why you get to the end of the book and Jesus is all by himself. For the disciples shaped by a different politic, a different way of viewing the world, when they recognize the costliness of this, they flee. They run. They leave. They can't stay. Which is right. For in our own strength, we cannot be what Christ is calling us to be. Only Christ can initiate this kingdom. But when the resurrection is over and the spirit comes, a people who could not stay to the end are now empowered to be what they could not be apart from the resurrected Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. And they become a people who embody Christ's way and are not afraid if it means death, they would rather die than give up the politic of the cross. And Paul can say, listen, for me to live is Christ. That's where my identity is. And that means that even in death, my identity is in Christ and, my, and to die is gain. Paul, who was so religious, can say, I now count it all worthless compared to knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And so this... This morning, sisters and brothers, our world faces an identity crisis, one that can only be solved by making the God almighty, making Christ alone the end of our being and everything else. Jesus says, when you seek first the kingdom of God, do you know what else? Everything else finds its right place. And I don't know what to do, sisters and brothers, in a world that's so deeply divided other than to hold up the cross. And I have to say, I am so excited. I, have, I feel like for me personally, and I feel like there's a generation, I don't mean by that just young people. I mean, there's a generation of old and young and everything in between, as we read in the call to worship this morning. There's a generation who want to be shaped by the cross. I'm so excited about that, but I'm not optimistic the whole church will show up and follow. But God help us <laughs> to find our identity in him and to be a people shaped by the cross. Amen. God help us today. I pray for some sisters and brothers online today, some young people in this room across the street struggling with identity, trying to figure out in a world without an overarching story, who in the world am I? 
I pray they would find themselves not in a new hobby or even a new occupation, not even in a new relationship, but ultimately they would find themselves in you. And all those other things then will find their proper role and place. For if we want to find ourselves, we should lose ourselves for your sake. And I pray, God, today for a church, especially in this culture, and sisters and well-meaning sisters and brothers, all of us shaped more by a particular lens of earthly, worldly, political systems than we are by the cross. So make us a unique people, a people who take up the cross daily and follow you. And find that means that sometimes we are really salty salt, conserving things that are passing away too quickly, holding on to things that are good and beautiful that you have created and working desperately to conserve. And we find ourselves as people who see the brokenness in the world and want people to be liberated. (laughs) And so we're hard to define and hard to pin down and not because we're somewhere mushy in the middle, but because we're shaped by you. So empower us today. Give us patience with each other and with you and with ourselves as you heal our blindness and open our deaf ears and give us tongues that speak truth. Make us courageous and bold as those who participate in this revolution of the cross. A revolution that frees by grace and transforms by love. May that be us today, we pray. For we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.